you know, I've been getting a lot of requests to bring Gilded Age back uh, <laughs> in the time that we've been gone. So I think that's encouraging. So that's a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's nice. You, you two look good. It's been a minute. You too. I like your new, you got some, a new uh, little studio. I got, I got I a new little studio. You know, I figured coming back, new setting. All right. So yeah, you know, we have we have listened to our enormous audience and all the many calls for a revival of Gilded Age. So many calls. Um, and so we are we are essentially relaunching it now under the auspices of the Opt Out Media Foundation, the uh, nonprofit charity uh, that the three of us are involved with and helped found. Um, that are, you know has a mission to elevate independent media that's trustworthy, financially independent news. Um, to to put it all under one roof on a free app for iOS and Android to aggregate it in our newsletters that come out multiple times a week. Um, and so Gilded Age is now going to be part of the Opt-Out Network again. And it's also full episodes are going to be available to uh, recurring donors to our newsletter. But not this first episode. This this comeback episode is going to be completely free. It's going to be out there. You can You can listen to it. It's a fascinating interview with Congressman Ro Khanna, who might just be the most responsive member of Congress. We talked with him about several topics, including his take on the midterm elections, uh, the uh, what's going to happen next term if the GOP takes the House. Is there any uh, you know, possibility of, of bipartisanship? His takes on the Ukraine war and Saudi Arabia and OPEC cutting back oil production. Lots, lots of talk about the pandemic and how the Democrats have um, dealt with it or not dealt with it. Uh, and finally, um, discussion about uh, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, uh, free speech and what that means and, and how, how we can possibly fight misinformation that social media like Twitter, YouTube and Facebook are notorious for helping spread. You know. Welcome to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast about how and why we're fucked. I'm Mark Colangelo. I'm Walker Bragman. And I'm Alex Koch. We're here with Congressman Ro Khanna in California. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, so let's get right into it. Um, we want to talk to you a little bit about the midterms, then we want to get into sort of Ukraine, and then I want to ask you some questions about the pandemic. Sounds great. Awesome. So, so what is uh, your key takeaway from the election results as they stand right now? Well, the election results were incredibly uh, positive. I mean, uh, they defied all expectations. I think it showed that people mm -hmm. rejected election denial and uh, extremism uh, that was trying to undermine democracy. It showed that uh, reproductive rights was a big deal, uh, bigger than uh, pollsters anticipated. Uh, and uh, it, it has left us uh, with an odds-defying midterms. Now, we still have work to do on uh, an economic agenda and regaining trust on the economy and standing up for working-class uh, voters, but uh, it was a step in the right direction. Uh, was, was there anything that, or any races that really stood out to you uh, as especially surprising? Well, I think the margin of John Fetterman's victory was very encouraging. It showed that you can run on issues like Medicare for all and mm -hmm. uh, a populist uh, agenda and, and win a swing state. That's a big uh, 
uh, deal for progressives. Uh, I uh, also thought Mandela Barnes ran a, a very strong race. I mean, it's a shame he came uh, one point short and uh, we could have maybe pushed back more on the, the uh, Johnson ads. Uh, Nevada was very encouraging that we mobilized and outperformed uh, all of the Republicans in all three of the congressional districts and in the Senate race. Um, and and if the the GOP takes the House, I haven't checked back in a few hours, but um, if, if they do narrowly take the House, um, do you think that uh, there's a chance of winning any of them over on on some legislation? Well, it's going to be tough. I mean, I for uh, some rule reform, ban uh, PAC money, lobbyist money from uh, uh, members of Congress, uh, uh, make sure that members of Congress can't become lobbyists, make sure that members of Congress uh, are able to introduce legislation. Uh, so let's see if there's any uh, legislative reform uh, that we can do with this narrow margin. And I'm talking to some Republicans about that. Great. Uh, well, I want to turn to the war in Ukraine and some geopolitics uh, briefly. Um, so on, I noticed that on October 24th, uh, you and some other House progressives uh, wrote to President Biden asking him to pair military and economic support uh, with diplomatic efforts uh, in Ukraine. Um, then progressives retracted the letter the next day after some pushback. So um, how do you think the U.S. is doing diplomatically now in, in terms of Ukraine and Russia? Well, I uh, stood by that letter. I thought the letter was common sense. It basically said that we're going to stand by Ukraine, support Ukraine. Putin's war is illegal. But we need to have diplomacy, too. And, and that strikes me as pretty obvious. And now the administration is engaged in conversations with the Russian counterparts. The generals have come out recently and said that this is something we need to do to prevent escalation. Uh, so in many ways, the letter was vindicated. And Biden, uh, I believe, was meeting with uh, Chinese prime minister today. That must have come up, I think, a bit in their conversation. Um, and then um, another letter that you were part of uh, was a letter to the administration calling for the U.S. to halt arms sales to Saudi Arabia after OPEC, which Saudi Arabia is part of, uh, cut back majorly in oil production. So this may have advantaged uh, Putin, um, you know, po possibly helped his oil profits and advanced him in the war. So um, how, how did the administration respond to that? Well, they've said that they're going to take action. I mean, look, the Saudis shouldn't be pushing us around. I mean, and we have provided them with more arms than almost any other ally. So many joint defense agreements and we need to hold them accountable. So uh, I've said that we need to halt our arms sales. They're responsible for one of the most atrocious wars, the Yemen war that is ongoing. Uh, the, the ceasefire has uh, fallen apart. Uh, so uh, I will continue to, to 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 push, and I'm hoping the administration will take a harder line on that. Okay, and and you know, speaking of kind of potential bipartisanship, I mean, I know you've worked very hard in the last several years to work across the aisle to pass legislation uh, calling out the war in Yemen and 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 our uh, the United States assistance of Saudi Arabia in that cause. So um, uh, perhaps you know that could continue, uh, and then you know going on to um, Kind of a related, very related uh, issue, climate change. Um, you know, clearly it's harmful for our economy if gas prices are sky high and it raises inflation and does all kinds of damaging things around the world. Um, but you know, in that conversation, you know, where where are we with climate action? You know, how do we square pushing for increased oil production um, and and saving you know saving the planet? 
Well, we say we need a moonshot in renewable energy for price stability. Let me give you a concrete example. When I was up in New Hampshire campaigning for Chris Pappas and uh, Annie Custer, I found out that John's, that Chris Sununu there, the governor, has artificially restricted the amount of solar that you can produce. He actually has caps on solar and wind. Uh, and that that is uh, uh, absurd. I mean, he's uh, increasing the rates of utility uh, because of those caps. So we need to make the case that having more alternative energy, having more renewables is going to help uh, American ratepayers. It's going to help uh, bring price stability. Um, I want to pivot to the pandemic. I want to run down some facts with you. Since Joe Biden took office, more than 650,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. According to New York Times numbers, about 50,000 Americans have died in the last three months. Uh, According to the U.S. Census Bureau data, roughly 7.5% of the adult American population is living with long COVID. And in July, the American Academy of Neurology declared the condition to be the country's third leading neurological disorder. Meanwhile, a large study of more than 5 million Americans recently showed that repeat infections increase the risk of bad outcomes like long COVID or serious health complications like diabetes, kidney damage, and death. Um, And then Evusheld, the only protection that immunocompromised Americans have against COVID is losing, losing efficacy as new variants crop up, which is happening a lot because viral spread is happening fairly unchecked. So I wanted to ask, do you still think that the COVID-19 pandemic is a crisis? I do think it is still something that is a, a, a concern, a deep concern. I mean, I, I, I think it is an ongoing uh, issue and, and a major health public health issue. You know, I'm glad to hear that you say that because I would agree. But I am surprised that it, it was not really an issue during the midterms. It barely came up at all. Um, why do you think that is? Well, I think, look, people have uh, had such fatigue with uh, being sheltered in place, with uh, restrictions. I think there is a sense among a lot of people that they want to get on with their lives. Uh, but there's also uh, a recognition that we're still not uh, fully out of the woods. And this means that we need to uh, do a better job getting people to take boosters. We need to continue to uh, provide uh, booster uh, research uh, dollars to make sure that uh, we're ahead of the variants on vaccines. We need to be funding uh, the new types of boosters and and, uh, and new types of drugs to be uh, distributed. Uh, So, uh, you know, we still have uh, work to do. Well, let me ask you a little bit about pandemic fatigue. Do you think that the administration and maybe the Democratic Party have played some role in, in that pandemic fatigue? I mean, early on, uh, Biden pushed schools to open. He declared independence from COVID on July 4th, 2021, um, right during the, the, the Delta wave. And then uh, subsequently, we had the Omicron wave. He recently declared that the pandemic was over. Uh, the CDC relaxed masking guidance. It relaxed the, the uh, isolation recommendations, despite the fact that nobody from the White House who's gotten COVID has adhered to the five days. Um, and pandemic unemployment was allowed to uh, expire. Pa- the paid leave tax credit was allowed to expire. The ex- enhanced child tax credit was allowed to expire. And the eviction moratorium was allowed to expire. And today, despite hospitals filling up, children's hospitals filling up, the administration won't even recommend masking, which we know cuts viral spread. 
And it's relied pretty much exclusively on a vaccine-only approach, even though public health experts throughout the pandemic have largely called for layered protection. Um, there are still no universal workplace safety standards like air quality standards. Uh, OSHA hasn't enacted those. Um, there's no talk of paid leave, or the, and even the public option has disappeared from the national political discourse. Uh, the message seems to be, you know, make your own decisions, but there's no broad messaging campaign about the serious long-term co consequences of COVID, even long COVID. Um, so, you know, how much do you think that plays into people thinking that the pandemic is over? I wish, uh, in retrospect, that we uh, had not said that uh, there was independence from COVID. Obviously, Delta happened, Omicron happened. I think we have to acknowledge that this is a, a very serious disease that all of us are still uh, dealing with. And we need to make sure that we are pushing uh, for vaccines, for boosters, for drug treatments that are uh, effective uh, and giving people the information uh, that they, they need. Uh, obviously, some of the other policies that you said I support intrinsically. I mean, we should be ex expanding the child tax credit, having paid family leave. Uh, and those are policies that uh, are good in and of themselves beyond the fact that uh, they help with the pandemic. Uh, but I, you know, I think that there is a balance where we can tell people uh, that you can go celebrate Thanksgiving, you can travel uh, you can go uh, live your life, uh, but you shouldn't realize that there is still risk and that we're doing the things we can uh, through vaccines, through medicine uh, to really mitigate that risk. But, you know, something that we haven't heard very much about is long COVID. Now, vaccines do protect somewhat uh, against long COVID, but we don't really know how much. Some studies suggest not very much at all. Um, we also know that mild infections are tied to long-term consequences like cardiovascular issues or kidney damage or diabetes. That messaging hasn't come out of the White House, and I haven't heard much of it from anybody really in, in office. Uh, I, I got to wonder, how how does that affect you know personal choice? If somebody isn't being given the facts, how can they make uh, an informed decision about their health? Well, I do think we should get the facts out there on, on long COVID and then also look at what are the cures, what are the therapies? too long COVID and it, what are the preventions and make, make uh, in, investments in them. I mean, I think the balance is how do you get people uh, who want to uh, still go shop and still go to Thanksgiving and still gather with Christmas and go out to eat and go uh, spend time with loved ones, be able to do that uh, while being uh, investing, investing in the vaccines and therapies that are needed. Uh, and, um, and, and striking that balance. And that's, I think, what policymakers are, are, are struggling to, to, to figure out. Well, do you think that it, it might help to send masks and tests to people? I mean, they're, they're, the administration had to be sort of bullied into sending out the tests that it did, but now there seems to be no money to, to continue that policy. Um, we know that, that N95 masks do protect against the virus, that high quality masks do prevent the virus. Um, do you see in the next Congress any any chance of maybe uh, uh, reinstating a policy of sending um, pre preventative tools directly to American households? Well, we should do that. And the Democrats have been wanting to. Progressives first called on it. I had a bill with Senator Sanders to 
send masks and tests to, to every American. President Biden started to do that. Biden administration did it. And then we wanted more funding for its continuance. And uh, the Republicans have opposed that. So I, I really think we need to try to get that funding in the omnibus, especially if we lose the House of Representatives to get it in beforehand. Does it make it more difficult to get that funding when the president says that the pandemic is over? No, I, I think this is a matter of uh, the Republicans opposing it. The Democrats have been for it. But I, I do think that most Americans realize we still need testing. Most Americans realize that we still need masks for those who are vulnerable for times where we may go into very crowded places. Uh, I, I do think that that's something that uh, has popular support. Um, and my last question on this is that the uh, somewhat silence of the of progressives throughout this pandemic. Now, I understand that you introduced legislation to send masks and tests, but it does seem that this pandemic is a moment very similar to the subprime mortgage crisis in that it represents a massive failing of the status quo and presents great opportunity for systemic change. And yet conversations around Medicare for all, conversations around uh, stimulus checks and, and government support for people seem to have died off, um, particularly since Biden took office. Uh, where is the pushback from progressives on the Biden administration's sort of push to return to economic normalcy? Where where has that been? I, I mean, I, you know, outside of of individual efforts to get to get legislation through that you know didn't make big headlines i guess well i think the biden administration wasn't just a return to economic normalcy i mean they had the stimulus checks right in the american rescue plan we had the child tax credit passed for 6 months that really helped working families there was a moratorium uh, on eviction there was massive funding for the schools uh, and the infrastructure spending, the spending on climate, uh, all are helping bring back manufacturing jobs and helping on the economy. Now we have to do more. We have to have childcare. We have to make the childcare tax credit permanent. That would really help working families. Uh, but uh, progressives have been pushing for that. It was, of course, that those parts got stripped from the Build Back Better bill. And the question is now, can we get them uh, back in to the Biden agenda, which is hard with a Republican House? But the progressives have been pushing for those policies from the beginning of the administration. But it's not just that. I mean, it's it's the talk about like remote work. We know that remote work is is something that many workers in America are capable of doing. We know the economy can function that way. Um, but there hasn't been any real concerted effort to make it more feasible or encourage uh, more remote options, even for schools or um, you know, places where COVID spreads. Uh, I, I just, I do feel like there has been sort of a, do you, let me rephrase. Do you think that there has been enough done on the part of congressional and Senate progressives to uh, really go to the, go to the mat on this issue? I think a number of times uh, we, we, we have, I mean, for funding, for school funding, which was part of uh, the, the effort to prepare schools for COVID, uh, for broadband in infrastructure funding, which is needed uh, for remote work. Uh, but I, I mean, in terms of what more can we do to make remote work possible, I, I think that's something absolutely we should be uh, looking at and, and pushing. 
Alex, you know, you know something that's bothered me since Elon Musk took over Twitter is it's so hard to find reliable news. I just can't help but think if only there were some kind of app that just filtered out all the noise and gave me reliable news. That would be fantastic. That's just a great idea. Wait, so you're saying you can you can discover news content that's not only trustworthy and financially independent, but in a network, on a platform that's free of trolls and creepy DMs? Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? Does something like that exist? Uh, I don't think so, man. I've never heard of that. That sounds too good to be true. It, it does sound too good to be true. Oh, wait, actually, hold on. That's what we've been working on for the last two years. Wait, so you guys were, t- you were telling me about this thing, that it's this, this app? Yeah, it's called, it's called opt-in. Oh, wait, wait no, on. that's not it. Opt-out news. <laughs> opt-out, opt-out news. There it is. It's on Apple. It's on iOS and Android. It's totally free. It is curated by journalists like myself, like Walker here. Uh, we have a team of eight around the clock who are curating the news. There's no algorithm that privileges outrageous content or anything else. There's no profit motive. We're a nonprofit. There's no native ads on the app. Uh, It is just news all the time. It is the best and most important stories from independent media. Is Elon Musk on the app? Oh, hell no. Although there is a lot of, uh, a lot of coverage of of Musk, uh, often quite critical, um, but he will never be, um, in, in fact, you know, just to be clear, there's no user accounts. This is not a social media platform. We will have probably down the road some off, you know, off app, uh, uh, you know, open public platforms for discussion. But we're, you know, we're pretty serious about cutting out the hate and the misinformation and the harassment that goes on in pretty much every social platform. Uh, and so we decided to create Opt Out, which is, um, you know, a stream of, of, you know, the best news. We have podcasts, we have videos, and of course we have articles. Um, and it's based on what we think were flaws, uh, you know, from some of the major corporate uh, news aggregators like Apple News. So what can you do on Opt Out? You can watch, you can watch videos. You can you can listen to podcasts and you can read articles. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. So there's no oil money funding these podcast videos. <laughs> no oil money. Wow. Yeah, there's actually yeah. Unlike Semaphore, the new corporate newsletter service uh, that uh, just today for the for at least the second time sent out uh, a newsletter sponsored by Chevron that discussed the oil industry. Uh, we have no corporate backing. And in fact, we have a climate newsletter of our own uh, written by Christian Salazar. And uh, it is completely uh, reader funded, just as everything else in Opt-Out is. We're funded by uh, individual donations and uh, small foundations. Uh, and we're going to keep it that way because we don't think there should be a profit motive in uh, in in a lot of news and especially in news aggregation. You know, we're curating the news for people and we if we have a perverse incentive, we're probably going to uh, muck it up like they did at Facebook. The last thing that that we want to ask is about is about uh, Twitter. <laughs> Social media. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows what's been going on with the ownership of Twitter. The world's richest human being, Elon Musk, uh, now owns it took it private and is rapidly ruining the platform uh, from, from what I can tell. Um, so uh, to you, Representative Conrad, what's the best ownership situation of a platform like Twitter? Well, look, I, I, I think regardless of the ownership, uh, what is important is the governance. And what has to be the case is that there has to be independent governance of those platforms. 
for whatever you think of the Washington Post owned by Bezos, uh, Bezos isn't making the day-to-day decisions on the Washington Post. And, you know, there have been critics of mine many times, but it's not Bezos doing that. And so what uh, Musk, I think, needs to do or Twitter needs to do or whoever the ownership is of Twitter is create some independence on people making the decisions of the rules for the platform uh, and which tweet is up and which is not. And that uh, should have uh, some separation from the the ownership. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with that. I mean, I wonder if there's some way of having almost like a citizen's uh, council, you know, like the idea, you know, what Facebook had was was sort of a, some governance group. And then there was a outside group that they uh, tried to ban that was um, actually holding them accountable. I wonder if there could be sort of a two, a two layer system where you have your internal independent group and then you have kind of a citizens um, monitoring agency or something like that. I think that's a good idea. Do, do you foresee any increased regulation of social media uh, in response to this Twitter situation? Well, we've been trying to regulate social media for almost two years. I mean, I support privacy laws so that they can't take our data. I support making sure that they can't get kids addicted to their platforms and then cause suicide and, and, and depression. Uh, the, the, I support more competition laws. I support more disclosure laws in terms of how they're making their algorithmic decisions. Uh, th- these are all policies I've articulated in uh, in my book, Dignity in a Digital Age and in, in Internet Bill of Rights. But we need to now get legislation, and it's been very hard to get the legislation through. So you don't see you don't see much momentum among your colleagues for for these policies. I think on privacy we had some momentum, and and I'm hopeful on privacy we can get that done. Uh, but I I wouldn't say that Elon Musk uh, owning Twitter has been a catalyst for it. I mean, I think we've, we've got a, uh, we've, we've had many catalysts and now it's just a matter of getting it through. And finally, um, clearly you're, you're a lawmaker, but, but in the absence of, of legislation or uh, increased regulation of these platforms, I mean, how do we combat the misinformation crisis? Uh, it seems like right-wing misinformation is much easier to spread than the opposite. Um, it's easy for people to get angry and for you know conservative folks to rile up their base with uh, hate speech and things like that. That's pretty rampant on Twitter and Facebook. And um, there's even election misinformation on TikTok these days. So, um, I mean, do you have any other thoughts on on how to to fight and improve this misinformation crisis? Well, we need regulations on social media, such as less uh, data, because then people won't be able to target as effectively with Mm. uh, sensationalism and misinformation, such as disclosure requirements. So we know that how these algorithms are recommending QAnon or other uh, hate groups. Uh, And we need more platforms to emerge so that there's more competition and not more places uh, that people can uh, can congregate. Uh, But finally, we need to figure out how do we have human conversations uh, and, and meet people in communities and living rooms again. Uh, not just on on social media that's the most sensational uh, to to return to some sense of civility and and respect. How do we balance First Amendment concerns with efforts to combat um, online misinformation? I mean, the the Intercept recently reported that the Biden administration has basically been asking social media companies, flagging content and asking social media companies to remove that content. Um, There is an ongoing lawsuit 
right now, um, it's Missouri v. Biden, uh, and that's being waged by two Republican attorneys general um, and a Koch-funded litigation outfit that is, they're essentially arguing that even those limited efforts to combat misinformation by the Biden administration run afoul of the First Amendment. So how do we, what is the appropriate balance between First Amendment um, respect for speech rights and combating what is essentially dangerous uh, misinformation? Well, I think it, the clear line is the incitement to violence and the incitement to illegal conduct, which isn't protected under the First Amendment. So if you have speech that says, uh, go take action to, to commit violence, that should certainly not be protected. The uh, falsity is a different uh, challenge because uh, you can have speech that is false that's still protected uh, under the First Amendment. But I think it, having disclosure laws is, is important. Having consumer product laws are important. So you can't actively mislead about uh, about certain things that are causing consumer harm. Uh, and and there are a whole sort of regulations consistent with the First Amendment that we could have. Yeah, the, this is one of those rare cases where there's like both sides are 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 very unhappy and think that something kind of needs to be done about this. So it it just it it uh it seems like it shouldn't be as complex a problem as it is. But yeah, well, the First Amendment's a tough it's a tough area. I mean, yeah. the challenge is that. Uh, some people want more regulation and and, and less uh, of the harmful speech, and other people cry censorship. And these are age-old questions that are difficult, and that's that's why I think uh, it's hard to navigate. Well, my my big concern has been pandemic-related misinformation because that is killing people, actively killing people. The misinformation and disinformation related to COVID nineteen is causing people to not get vaccinated. Um, it's it's causing people to seek out quack treatments um and not protect themselves i mean that's that's dangerous and and you would think that there's a compelling government interest in stopping that in in a public health crisis like this but again the first amendment is a, is you know balancing first amendment concerns with with public health i think is 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 tough yeah, exactly. But there is, if you could show an imminent threat of bodily harm, of imminent threat of, uh, of harm to health, that would trump some of the First Amendment. But you have to provide uh, sufficient space for scientific criticism or people who don't agree with the consensus uh, to be able to voice their uh, their opinion. So, you know, I, I don't think I fully believe in the efficacy of vaccines, but I don't think someone who's raising legitimate uh, uh, questions should be censored. On the other hand, I think if you're telling people don't take the vaccine and and that's causing uh, harm, uh, that's a fine line. And so that's those are difficult questions to navigate. Well, Congressman, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The, you are the most responsive <laughs> member of Congress. Uh, well, I enjoy it. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your uh, being, uh, all of you being uh, out there as important activists and thought leaders. Um, can you tell Thanks us any, anything that you're you're working on that you want to get some attention to? Well, right now we're working with Senator Sanders to end medical debt, so to build to, to figure out how do we forgive medical debt. I think that's a really critical issue. And then I've been working. Uh, I introduced a bill uh, to stop subsidizing Wall Street for buying up single-family homes, which is also uh, contributing to, to to home inflation. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, 
and, and uh, please do come back. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Congressman. Thank you, guys. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original music by Direwolf. And don't forget to sign up for OptOut's free newsletters and download the OptOut app, aggregating financially independent, trustworthy news from over 175 outlets. Read, watch, and listen to the best of independent media. No native ads, no algorithms, no profit motive, just news curated by journalists. Find out more at optout.news. <laughs>